0: Good morning. If you want to open up to Exodus chapter 1, we are starting a new series today, and uh, it's going to take us through the end of the summertime. Um, so I'm excited about it. It's going through the book of Exodus, and uh, we do have um, just an Exodus prayer journal. If anyone wants to get these, they're out on the patio. Um, it has uh, just the text of Exodus and then ways to write notes and thoughts and prayers, um, but I think this would be great if you could get this uh, on the way out today, if you don't have it yet. Um, Exodus is an old story, a very old story. And it's an old text that we're dealing with here. I want to open up with this quote. It says, The trouble with the Bible is that so much of it's the Old Testament. And the trouble of the Old Testament is just that. It's old. Now, of course, some things, oldness, for some things... Oldness speaks of permanence and lasting, even increasing value. For other things, oldness spells outmoded, obsolete, and irrelevant. Which category does the Old Testament belong to? This is a question that was posed by an Old Testament scholar, an Anglican uh, who lives in Belfast named Christopher Wright in his book An Eye for an Eye, the Place of the Old Testament Ethics Today. And the question is really something that if we want to uh, we, uh, we, be real with ourselves, we, we probably all wrestle with. Like, Old Testament. Like, oh man, I'm a, I'm a New Testament Christian, you know, like, I don't have to pay attention to so many of those old stories and those old rules, and like, I'm saved by grace, so like, why do I need to, like, look at that, like, what's happening in the Old Testament? So oftentimes we neglect the Old Testament as followers of Jesus. Um, and even when we do sermon series, like, when we go through, like, a book of the Bible, like, we're like... We do the Gospel of Mark, we do the Book of Acts, Like we've done Revelation. We haven't done like a lot of series in the Old Testament. Um, and my hope for this series, as we jump into it for the next four months, is that that idea of the, the permanence of it um, and the value would increase in our lives as we just become familiar with this text, this old story. That it would be something that as we uh, spend time in it, we, we, we come to have a deeper understanding of God and what he's up to in history. Uh, we have a deeper understanding of what's happening uh, in the gospel stories with Jesus. And so we're going to take about four months to go through it. And uh, it's exciting for me, maybe not for you, but that will be uh, a long series. And, and uh, here, here's why Exodus is important. Exodus is important and we need to study it. Because it's the scripture that Jesus read. As Jesus walked the earth, he had, uh, he had sacred scripture. He had his Bible. It's the Old Testament. And Exodus is found in five books, the first five books of the Old Testament, called the Pentateuch. And this would have been the scripture that Jesus read. We know that Jesus quotes this, um, that, that, uh, that Jesus, uh, so much of his, his life is, is uh, showing us what it means to live this out. Um, but this is the sacred text that Jesus reads. If we are followers of Jesus, if we are disciples of Jesus, and uh, we, we, want, we are uh, living our life in a Christ-likeness, we need to understand the text that was sacred to him. And so there's a discipleship piece here as followers of Jesus that we need to know Exodus well. We need to wrestle with it. Uh, we need to explore it. We need to allow it to examine our lives. Um, with that being said, too, is like the, the, the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them, there's an echo of this Exodus story. So as you're reading the gospels, a lot of them are, are, are using these themes from the Exodus to describe what's now happening in Jesus. And also the, the gospel, this gospel truth that we all live and are transformed by is an echo of this Exodus story. Yet there was this group of people that were enslaved to others. They cry out to God, and God makes a way for them to be free. Part of our gospel story, what's happening in Exodus is happening with humanity, what Jesus is up to in this world. And so one of the reasons we study Exodus is this discipleship piece. This is the the sacred text that Jesus studied. The second is this. God reveals his name, his character, and his plan for redemption through this Exodus story this very old story, there's a theological piece to it. Our understanding of who God is, how he reveals himself, what his nature is like, what he's up to, how he brings about salvation, all of that is found in this story of Exodus. And there's some things that it's like God is a God of mercy and compassion, you see that. And then you have these other stories in Exodus, like Exodus 32, where it talks about how, how God gets angry. And there's this dialogue that happens between Moses and in God, There's a theological element of understanding who God is, and God is revealing himself. Uh, Moses wants to know who God is. He says, I am. I am who I am. Uh, this is where we get the idea of Tov, the goodness of God. This is a God who is good. You see his character. And then he hears his people's cry. This is a God who hears us when we cry out to him and makes a way for freedom and redemption. So there's a theological piece that we need to uh, work through as we go through exodus and then the third reason is you find identity and mission and formation for god's people in this book identity and mission and formation this this uh, this family uh, from the patriarchs turns into a people it turns into a nation uh, they they are freed uh, from from slavery in egypt they go out into the wilderness they end up at mount sinai and they're given this identity to be a kingdom of priests. They represent who God is. Their, their identity as a people is wrapped up in being these examples of, of God. They're this kingdom of priests. They're representatives of who God is. Um, and with that is a mission. They're given this mission um, as a people. And, and, and then also, they're not just saved from something. It's not that they're just saved from Egypt, but they're saved to something. And as they're Freed from Egypt, they, they're heading towards the promised land, but they go into the wilderness. And in that time, this relationship with God is deepened and, and it just, uh, in profound ways. Uh, their, their relationship is strengthened with God. There's a formation piece here. So we, we come to Exodus uh, for discipleship, for theology, and for purpose as the people of God. A um, couple things about the background uh, most people, uh, scholars would agree that uh, Moses wrote it or compiled uh, most of Exodus and really most of the Pentateuch, uh, that he, he brings it together. Not all of it, like there's stories in the Pentateuch of Moses' death. He obviously didn't write that, you know. Um, but even Jesus says that, that Moses uh, compiles this story. So we're going with Moses as the author. Um, there's a couple different views of its date. We know that it's really old. Um, there's, there's uh, kind of a range of when we think it was written, and we try to look at, like, archaeology and history, and um, if you like anything about, like, ancient Egypt, um, this is where it takes place, and so that's exciting. We are given a hint in First Kings chapter 6 about the date of the writing. It talks about how it's uh, in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he begins the temple-building project, and so we know he starts building the temple around 966 BC, and so uh, if you do math, you didn't know you're coming to church to do math. I don't like math, but if you do math 480 years before, that's like 1446 BC. So that's one of the theories of when this was written. Um, there's another theory that thinks it's a lot sooner, like in 1290 BC, and the reason they think it's this is because archaeology shows like the conquest of. Uh, Joshua that goes into the promised land. And so really there's a range here that we're dealing with of when the exodus is compiled, when these stories take place, sometime between like 1500 to 1200 BC. And I think that's important because um, Egypt is ruled by a, a series of different pharaohs and kings. And when we understand like what's happening in these stories, it's kind of interesting to know who's in charge, what's up, what they're up to. Um, so that's kind of a date range. This is an old story. And then also just Exodus, the name of it. In Hebrew, the name for this book is that these are the names. It's the first sentence of the book is what the Hebrews call it. These are the names. That's how it opens. Exodus was given that title in the first century, the Greek version of this Hebrew book, and it means the road out or the way out or to leave or to come out of. And it's this reminder that they, they come out of this situation where they're slaves. And God sets them free. And they come out of the situation and then they move into a different situation. They move into the wilderness. They eventually get to the promised land. But this is a story of leaving their captors and how God made a way for them. He saves them from something and saves them to something. The wilderness becomes a place of testing and eventually they arrive at their destination. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus for 16 weeks, looking at all of this. You might think that's a long time. That's four months. Just reminder: the Israelites spent 40 years in Exodus. So, they, you know, it's a pastor dad joke. It's not good. Okay, um, but let's start in Exodus chapter one. My hope is just to set set up this series uh, today. So a lot of this is information, and then we'll look at this first chapter. There's a couple things that are going on in this first chapter. Um, I want to think of the idea of divine blessing and human bitterness as we look at um, Exodus 1. We'll start in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, and all the descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So if you're new to church and you're new to the Bible, um, you, you read this and it doesn't mean much. And a good thing to do is come and ask questions. Okay, what's going on with these names and why are they placed here? If you grew up around church and you grew up around, you know, maybe going to like VBS or Sunday school, these names might bring up something. Like you hear the name Joseph Joseph. Oh, I know him, the coat of many colors. You might hear of Jacob. You know the stories of Jacob and Esau. Um, there, there's something going on here that's connecting us with the, the book of Genesis. These are names that are found in the book of Genesis. These are names that are a part of this patriarchy of, of uh, going all the way back uh, to, uh, uh, to Abraham. This is a family that has moved to Egypt. And if you remember how the book of Genesis ends... This list of brothers do a terrible thing. They have this brother named Joseph. He has a coat of many colors. He's his dad's favorite. They're jealous of him, and they sell him into slavery, an unbelievable evil act, an act of betrayal. They sell Joseph into slavery, and Joseph ends up in this household in Egypt, and he's a slave. He's a prisoner. Ends up in this household of a guy named Potiphar. God blesses him in the midst of a terrible situation. Um, People keep recognizing that he's gifted. And before long, what you realize is that Joseph goes from being a slave to being a person of power and prominence in Egypt. He rises so high in Egypt, he becomes like second in command in this great, mighty empire. Joseph has an incredible story. And then, as Joseph is in power, there's a famine that hits Egypt and Canaan and much of the Mediterranean world. God has prepared Joseph to lead this empire of people through the famine. So he's prepared them by storing up food. And as he stores up food, the rest of the world comes to Egypt to eat. And guess who shows up? This list of brothers who sold him into slavery. They come to Egypt, not knowing that he's now in command, and they're looking for food. And you have this moment of reconciliation, where Joseph, now in this place of power, has mercy on his brothers, and gives them food, reconnects with his dad, moves their family into Egypt, and there's this place of peace that they have. This is how Genesis comes to an end. So Exodus is connecting us with this previous story, this narrative of what God is up to through this family of people, and Joseph has brought his family to Egypt. It tells us that he's already there. Verse 6 says, then Joseph died. Like, incredible story, like, of Joseph. Amazing things that he does, and this this is just this reminder of our humanity, like, scriptures, like, and then he died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The first seven verses talk about this idea of divine blessing. They, they come to Egypt um, under circumstances that are not ideal. There's a famine. They're looking for food. Um, they run into their brother Joseph, who's in power, He invites the whole family to come and to stay in Egypt. And in the midst of those really difficult circumstances, you see that they're flourishing, that their numbers multiply and they grow. This is important because so much of what God has um, invited his people into is, is this calling to be fruitful and multiply. Like, part of his relationship with his family is he's telling them, be fruitful and multiply. And this is a promise of blessing for these people that goes all the way back to the creation story. In in Genesis 1, chapter 28, he tells this to Adam to be fruitful and to multiply in number. He tells this to Noah in Genesis chapter 8, and Abraham in Genesis 17, Isaac in Genesis 26, Jacob in Genesis 28. Be fruitful and multiply. And what Moses is telling us here is this calling from God and this divine blessing, even here in Egypt, in not ideal situation, and not ideal circumstances, God is fulfilling this plan. And he's been doing that for 400 years for these people here in Egypt. Moses is saying in the midst of these circumstances, there's this divine blessing, this relationship these people have with God, and you can continue to see the fulfilling of that blessing for these people. They come to Egypt because of a world famine and here they are, flourishing. Psalm 105 reminds us that Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham and the Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes. So this story opens up and you're like, things are going well for this group of people. But Joseph dies. And here's the second part of this chapter. It has to do with human bitterness. Here's how the story continues, verse 8. says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So there's a regime change. There's a a political upheaval. There's all sorts of theories of what this is, but it's a new king who no longer knows Joseph and Joseph's story. Verse 9 says, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Let me read that again. The Egyptians were in dread. They were fearful. They were afraid of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter. Made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So divine blessing and now human bitterness. The group of Egyptians, this powerful empire, exploits and oppresses the Israelites because they're fearful of them. There's a lot of things that are going on here and different thoughts of, of what's happening. Obviously, we know that a new king comes to power. He doesn't know Joseph. Um, there's some thoughts about like, the timing, of why the timing's important, is that there's these different regimes that come in that rule over Egypt. Uh, one of the groups was called the Hyksos pharaohs. And the Hyksos means the foreign rulers. Um, they were this group of Western Semitic people that came in, and for a while they ruled Egypt. And as they ruled Egypt, uh, they, they ruled with very much the culture of, of maybe the area where God's people were, were from. Uh, they weren't necessarily Egyptians. They were called foreign rulers. They were also called shepherd kings. We know that the Egyptians don't think very highly of shepherds. So one thought is that as, as this new group comes into power, that the Israelites remind them of their old rulers. Something about the Israelites for them is like, oh, we, we remember, they were kind of like that other group of people that ruled us. And so there's prejudice against them. They're shepherding people. Like they remind us of these Semites that are from this other area and prejudice kicks in. Another thing for the Egyptians is, uh, is, like, they're in power, they have security, and they're worried about that because of how this group of people are growing and flourishing. And it's like the more they try to, uh, you know, to, to, it's like throwing uh, like, like water on, a, on a, like fire and oil, pan just spreads the fire everywhere. Everything that they do, the, the, the Israelites keep growing more and multiplying more. And so they enslave them. They turn their lives bitter out of their fear for them. There's this this human bitterness that, that comes into the scene for God's people, and it goes on for 400 years. That's a really long time. 400 years of God being silent. 400 years. I mean, think of like again to do math. I'm a pastor. I don't like doing math, but what like 400 years ago? What was the world like? Was it like the 1600s? How much changes in 400 years? These people of God are in this situation where they're enslaved for 400 years. A life of bitterness. It goes from divine blessing to human bitterness. And the condition that they're in is terrible. And yet, in the midst of that, they continue to multiply, to flourish. You see this throughout really Scripture. God's people, no matter what circumstances they find themselves in, God's doing something. Even times where He feels silent, He's up to something. And in fact, when you you look at the stories of Scripture, what you, what you might say even is that, uh, that sometimes you can enjoy the blessings by the hand of God while enduring bitter circumstances at the hand of people. You see that here in this story, this blessing and this bitterness. Sometimes you, you can enjoy the blessings by the hand of God while enduring bitter circumstances from the hands of other people. And as we look at the situation that God's people are in, what that should do, that should give us hope. That should give us courage. There's a steadfastness. There's a resiliency here to these people that are enduring. And God is still with them. The other thing that this, it sets up this idea of blessing and bitterness. But then it also talks about two kinds of fear in this world. Like, the Egyptians are afraid of the Israelites as they grow in numbers. There's this fear of other humans. And, like, what that leads the Egyptians to is terrible. Here's, like, what happens from their fear, and then another type of fear enters the story. Verse 15, it says this. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife, to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. This is like the worst gender reveal party of all time. This is terrible, right? So if it's a boy they're going to kill him. If it's a girl, they're going to let the girl live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. The midwives get this command from the Pharaoh to kill all of the boys when they're born. But because they fear God, they let him live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And then the midwives, this is called situational ethics. They're honest, but they don't really tell the truth. They said, the the midwives said, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Because they feared God, you find a flourishing here. Because they feared God, God sees that and responds. So you have blessing and bitterness in this story, in this circumstance. You have the people of God who are horribly oppressed. And then you have fear. And you see what fear, fear does funny things to people. Fear does funny things to people. And for the Egyptians, they were afraid of their neighbors. They were afraid of these Israelites. And what that leads to is hate and suspicion and oppression and death. And there might be some history here with, with what they think of the Israelites and like maybe their old rulers, we don't know. All we know is that they're afraid of them for their own security, for their own power, and because of that, they are killing babies, the children, the Hebrew boys. Fear leads, it sounds like something Yoda would say in Star Wars, like fear, anger leads to hate, hate leads to fear. You know, it, fear leads to hate, suspicion, oppression, and death. And then there's this other type of fear that you see with these midwives, and it's this fear of God. We're told in Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's this reverent fear of of who God is and how he has invited us to live life. And what we find in that is wisdom and flourishing in life. And these midwives, out of their fear of God, are bringing life to these Hebrew boys, to these Hebrew people. And they're navigating these terrible circumstances with incredible wisdom with situational ethics, and more life comes from it. Fear towards others leads to death. Fear towards God leads to life. Because God has invited us into a certain way of life in how we live with him and with other people, and we respond to that with reverent fear. That is how humanity flourishes. This story... It's about blessing and bitterness, it's about slavery and freedom, it's about death, and it's about life. And what the people of God are called to do, and here in chapter one, is to be faithful and to trust God. And what we're going to find is that they cry out to him, even though in the midst of the circumstances it